Hello and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. Joining me are my special guests, Ben Gossick, Vice President, Director and Portfolio Manager, and Trevor Cummings, Vice President of ETF Distribution, both from TD Asset Management. Today, we're going to be talking about how investors are between a rock and a hard place looking for innovative ways to achieve attractive income streams without sacrificing total return or reaching for yield. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Ben, Trevor, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. I thought maybe we'd start off by talking about some of the uh, innovative things that you're doing at TD Asset Management, uh, what you're seeing, some of the trends you're seeing in the market, uh, what you're seeing in investors do from your from your perch in terms of, uh, you know, ways investors are trying to find new ways as opposed to sticking to the old sort of traditional ways of finding uh, yield in this market. Maybe you guys can take turns uh, talking about some of those things. Trevor, maybe I'll just start off with, you know, the problems that we're seeing and then uh, maybe you can talk about sort of the products that people have been, you know, seeking out and try to, you know, solve their income needs. Um, I'd say, Pierre, even coming out of the great financial crisis, uh, we were in a pretty low interest rate world. And I'd say your average investor is probably in a 60-40 portfolio, so 60% equities, 40% fixed income. And even, you know, we think, you know, we had low rates then, we have even lower rates now, but that portfolio was probably yielding about two and a half percent. Now, the average inflation was about two, two and a half. But I, I'd say most people didn't really see the bite you know, when it came to consuming goods and services. And what's happened with COVID is we, you know, the central banks and governments had to take such extraordinary measures uh, in order to sort of bridge this, uh, our economy uh, to the other side of this healthcare crisis. And that meant lowering interest rates. And so that two and a half portfolio that, you know, many investors were already complaining was too low, um, is probably yielding about one and a half percent now. And now the inflation that was around two, two and a half is coming out around four to five. And people are really starting to see it and they're seeing it in, you know, when they're trying to buy a car, uh, they're definitely seeing it in house prices. Uh, the grocery store. So now they really feel it and they really feel that sort of that one and a half percent yield. Uh, and I think that, you know, fuels even more pressure. Um, I kind of look at it this way, if, you know, if I was earning two and a half and now I'm back and down to one and a half overnight, I got to double my nest egg That's or right. I, I need to find stuff that, you know, generates a lot of yield. Um, and in many cases, you know, you definitely will move yourself up the risk curve. Uh, if you're trying to find, you know, assets that throw off a lot of yield, because as all things, you know, nothing comes for free. So I'd say that. That, I think that generally sort of lays out um, the the challenges that savers are facing right now um, you know, on this side of, of the, the COVID crisis. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's actually, it's huge when you think about it. I mean, if you have a million dollars, I mean, a million dollars isn't what it used to be. Um, you know, at two and a half percent, that's a $25,000 income. And then if suddenly, you know, you're looking at one and a half percent, that drops to 15,000. 
given that you would want to have something similar, you'd have, you would have to have close to $2 million in order to get that, that 25 to $30,000 equivalent. And then again, I mean, you know, what kind of retirement, uh, are we talking about with $25,000? So it's, it's extremely challenging. I mean, in terms of, of what the, what the liabilities are, what the requirements are for, for anyone facing retirement in, in, uh, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever the outlook is for, for any given investor, uh, to the goalposts have been moved quite far away just by the fed and by the intervention in the, you know, in the economy. I think, so, you know, you, um, you could say the 4% rule is dead, right? William Bengen, a quarter century ago, did this study and said, you know, you should be able to take out 4% of your portfolio adjusted for inflation every year. And, you know, 99 times in a hundred, you'll, you'll never run out of money subject to some tail risk. Uh, those days are gone. You know, I think, I think there's been this secular shift towards investing for yield with the rise of fee-based and discretionary asset management. So just within the industry, there's more appetite for yield so that the financial professional, the investment professional can take their fee without touching the principle of an account. There's demographics at play. Certainly, you know, we're, we're not getting any younger, uh, on the panel today, but that's Canada at large, you know, StatsCan says there's more Canadians 65 plus than zero to 14. There's more seniors in Canada than children, and we're never going back. So more and more people are looking for yields and there just isn't any out there unless you stretch. You know, when you look at, say, just passive vanilla indexes, uh, the emerging markets index pays a higher yield than the TSX at this point. And even still, it's about two and three quarters versus about two and a half right now. So neither of those are going to get anybody close to the, to the 4%. Now, there are some indexes out there that do yield four, but you're talking EM currencies, you're talking global high yield bonds. You've really got to take on sort of a, a, a non-commensurate amount of risk in order to earn that kind of yield. So investors need to do more than just pursue, you know, asset classes with higher published yields. They're going to need to do something else, whether that's innovation, whether there's some activity within the portfolio, but just, you know, picking and choosing asset classes and then adjusting your withdrawal rate for inflation. That's not going to work any, any longer. It's funny, uh, you know, while you were talking, Trevor, I was just thinking of the uh, lifestyle creep, you know, the, the, the simple answer is, uh, what's the solution to this, you know, well, we're going to have to make more money, <laughs> right? But it's not that simple. I mean, I, uh, you know, investors are doing a lot of crazy things, uh, you know, in this market and, and some of it is because of, of, you know, this idea that there's no alternative, uh, or Tina. Um, but so from your, from your guys perch, from where you sit, you, you're, you're probably receiving a lot of internal research from, from within, uh, you know, TD's, um, internal findings and research from, from market research within the firm. What is it telling you that investors are doing, you know, what are some of the crazy things that you, that you think are crazy that investors are doing? in order to satisfy this liability of, you know, 4% plus in order to, to get more, more income from their assets. And what are some of these, what are, what are some of the things also let's, let's also, um, you know, pad that with, 
What are the things that investors aren't doing? So, I mean, I'll, I'll take that one first, I guess, you, you know, when, when you think of things in the context of exchange traded funds, you know, outside of the passive, you know, plain vanilla benchmarks, one of the biggest categories out there is the dividend ETF. And, you know, a, a lot of them, I'd say most all of the dividend ETF universe, one of the very first things they do in that, that kind of funnel where they're taking many securities to few is they screen for yield. So, you know, take a hundred names in an, in a, in a, in a geography or in an asset category, sort them from highest dividend to lowest dividend and, you know, knock out the bottom half and, and, and don't give them a second thought. And the trouble really is that there are some really incredible opportunities in the bottom half of that list. You know, if, if you're led by the nose to what the dividend yield is, the first problem is you might be missing out on really great opportunities. The flip side of that coin though, is the, the top half of that list might be the riskier half. I mean, you, you never know for sure, yeah. but certainly some of the names with high yields have high yields to reflect the risk inherent in those specific companies. You know, a hundred dollars stock with a $3 dividend is a very, you know, basic 3% yield. Well, if that stock falls over the next 12 or 15 months to $50 a share, you know, the, the yield, uh, is going to show 6% on that security. And, and if I don't do any due diligence, if I just sort of call it a day and, and, you know, blind, blind faith invest. Well, you know, I've, I've invested in something that, you know, hopefully will stop declining in value. Who's to say, right. um, but I'm, I'm fooled almost really by this illusory 6% yield when in fact that company might be in such meaningful distress that that dividend itself is at risk. So, so you can't just screen for yield. And, and I know a lot of the dividend ETFs are going to do a little bit more. They're going to look at the track record of that company. They might look at some quant metrics. Um, but again, the, the, the first point stands, there are some really, really great opportunities in the market out there that maybe only have a yield of 1%, maybe have a yield of less than 1%, yeah. maybe have a yield of zero, you know? And so I think it's important to be more holistic in, in, in sort of interpreting, you know, where the opportunities are to start. Uh, Pierre, I'd say, yeah. you know, again, anecdotally, I mean, you hear stories about people doing private lending or, or private mortgages. I mean depending on the sophistication of investors, people might go out there and take on all that risk. Um, or now we're hearing stories about decentralized finance that, you know, again, people yeah. don't get anything on their money market and moving into, again, some of these esoteric areas. I'd say uh, kind of picking up from Trevor in, in sort of the traditional, let's say the ETF or mutual fund space, um, you either are chasing the high dividend yielders and that will be sort of your telcos or utilities or some of your staples. Um, but from a fundamental perspective, they might be facing you know, negative earnings growth. And then the challenge, I think, if, you know, for people that were going after the blue chips um, is that their stocks have, uh, their companies have actually done quite well because of COVID and they've seen revenue growth and, and margin growth and we're seeing record free cash flow growth. Um, and that's being re reflected in the price. Uh, and in many ways, the dividends haven't kept up. So um, the dividend yields that are out there are, are quite small. Um, so that, that that is challenging, I'd say, for anyone right now to sort of you know, where they were going you know, in the traditional. I'd say what people are not doing uh, to pick up on, on the other part of your question right. 
whenever we find people chasing uh, income, they never look at their total return. Um, so it's, it, it, uh, I call it like the, um, the used car lot sticker. It's just look at the big sign that says 6%, 8% yield. Only focus on that. Yeah. Don't look at the rest of the car. Just focus <laughs> on that sticker. Um, and that'll be great because people are like, well, the, you know, that's like a 6% return. That's my yield. Um, and they don't, you know, your, your real returns are a combination of the price of the security and the dividends. And what ends up happening is sometimes the price overwhelms. So the stock could be down 20%. It doesn't matter that you got that 6% yield. You're actually falling <laughs> behind. Yeah. And again, it, it, the fact that people aren't looking at total return, um, again, it, we talked about, you know, in some cases you need to double your nest egg overnight. Well, if, you know, you invested in these securities thinking that you were getting income, but your capital is actually depleting on you, you're fertile to even get back to where you were just, you know, becomes, you know, it's, uh, as they say, you know, in the Simpsons, you know, we got to dig our way out of the problem. Um, yeah. you just kind of keep going lower and lower. So, um, I'd say from my perspective, I, I think Trevor would share that the biggest thing that we find that people miss, you know, when they're looking out for income is they forget about price, um, and they become maximalists. And in that situation, you know, it can work out, but most of the time, uh, it does, it typically leads to capital losses. It's like the yeah, fuel I'm, I'm, economy and the maintenance costs of a car versus the windshield price. Yeah, indeed. You've got to do more due right. diligence than just the surface. You know, I think one of the other siren songs really in, in the ETF space in particular is, is that 20 odd billion dollars worth of systematic covered call or buy right ETFs. And, you know, they all kind of have, uh, really generous yields, but they do indeed come at the cost of price return. Um, and it, on right. a total return basis, very, very few of them beat a, 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 a fairly standard buy and hold strategy of, of the asset class or the category. So I think those are kind of those real, uh, observations really of the, the siren song of dividends and really the, the even, you know, amped up yields that you can find in covered call ETFs led us to thinking about, you know, what, what can we do here at TD asset management in the ETF space? that takes elements of that, delivers some yield improvement, but also delivers additional total return to, uh, to investors. There's 30 or 40 years of recency, you know, of 60, 40 working and continuing to work. And so the, the drive or the impetus to, to change away or to, to do things differently away from the 60, 40 model that has worked for so long and that people have gotten very comfortable with maybe is the better way to put it. Is that, is that it has left investors with sort of a knowledge gap. You know, I always, I always go back to this idea of known knowns, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And I, I, I'm hoping that by the end of this conversation, you know, that would, that we'll get into some of the known unknowns and some of the unknown unknowns. Even I think part of the problem is that investors and advisors alike for that matter, um, don't necessarily know what's possible out there in the marketplace. There are things that are available today that weren't available, you know, two, three, five years ago. So let's talk about what you guys, uh, your, your research uncovered that, that bridges the gap between the two areas of total return and income, because most of the strategies that are in the marketplace right now only do half or, or one of those two strategies, but very few or, or, or rarely do they do both. And this was really a, a, a gap that you work to, to fill. 
So maybe talk about some of the things that you discovered in marketplace or solutions that you innovated that address that. Sure. So I'll give you some of the history of the product and, uh, the Genesis sort of goes back even to 2016, you know, our, our industry is quite competitive. Um, and I think Trevor was saying that you know, cover call strategies are 20 billion to 30 billion in assets under management. Um, but they were, they've been gathering assets for quite a few many years. So, um, at that time, TD asset management didn't have ATS, but we, we, we have a, a great dividend growth franchise. Uh, and you know, the, the ask was, you know, what's going on in, in the, in the option market and how do we participate? Uh, and so, you know, we looked at it from the call side. Um, so that's basically giving up, um, appreciation for income today. Uh, cause that's where most of the assets that we could see that were, uh, were gathered, you know, those, those were the funds that were gathering the most assets. Um, and they were all typically systematic. Uh, many of them are sort of sector focused or equal weight. Um, but they basically follow the same sort of, uh, textbook strategy, you know, maybe two or 3%, um, upside in, in a, on a, on a rolling monthly basis. Uh, and then, um, you know, and that typically because you're giving up that much upside, you know, will generate a good amount of yield. And so you're seeing these distribution yields of five, six, seven, eight percent. Um, that we found, uh, typically underperformed. So even back in 2016, we were looking at the, the, the market and our, and our performance. And we found that that typically underperformed the underlying investment. So you are always better off not paying the management fees, not collecting the juicy distributions. And from a total return perspective, so taking on, you know, lower amounts of, of income, um, you always surpass that strategy. Um, and so you were better off just buying the underlying. Um, and so at that point in 2016, we were just this, you know, this, that doesn't seem to, to work. I say one of the things that really unlocked a, a whole area for us across many of our funds, um, was not focusing on where everyone was, which was on the call side of focusing on the put side. And we're right. not talking about, you know, when people think about puts, they're like, oh, that that's insurance. <laughs> uh, puts are there to buy protection. Uh, but for every contract, there is a buyer and a seller. And so if people are buying insurance, who are they buying insurance from? Um, how much are they paying? What are these premiums? Uh, and how much deductible are they willing to give to the insurance company? And for us, that was a major unlock. Um, because that strategy is basically premised on, um, I will say owner fear or owner, uh, fear mitigation. So I own right. my house, I own my car. I'm worried about a flood or a fire. So to make myself feel better, I pay these options. You know, I pay these premiums. It's no different for an asset like, you know, Apple or Microsoft or, or JP Morgan, you know, people are willing to, or their entire portfolio are willing to pay this insurance. And this right. insurance is quite, well, uh, the, the best word I could say is yieldy. And so in our dividend growth strategies, you know, we were looking at picking up again, through a cycle on average, a mid teens yield. Now, the way it works in ETFs and mutual funds is you have to back it with cash. So think of this as the cash that would have been sitting around waiting for some market dislocation, or think of it as the cash you were you know, sitting, you know, just cause you wanted to keep a buffer at, uh, at the bank account. And so. If I were to tell you, you know, Pierre, you could earn a mid teens yield on your cash. You'd say, yes, sign me up. That's what we want. 
Um, yeah. So that we've been running this put strategy, you know, since I think, you know, we started it in one fund in 2017. It's across 11 funds plus the two ETFs that I manage. Um, and, you know, that, that's roughly about two to 3% of the cash is just earning this mid-teens yield. You know, through this crisis, it's been, you know, multiples of that. But again, I think I, on the long term, it'd be mid-teens. So I'd say that that was the one unlock. Um, that ask, you know, when we wanted to get into the ETF space um, was, hey, there's all these covered call strategies. Can we get our share of wallet? Um, and so my response was, I'll build you a strategy, but I don't want to replicate what's out there. Because again, it goes back to people have a challenge for income, but they're seeking the wrong product because nothing changed. They still underperform on a total return basis. The big unlock for us here was to look at everything as sort of one you know, dynamic moving body, which is actively pick stocks and then actively write calls. Right. So um, I can't tell you the pushback I got because it was very different than what was out there. So I said, I didn't want a rolling monthly schedule. And they said, are you sure? <laughs> and that's what everyone does. Like, let's talk to the dealers. Let's like, everybody knows that you're rolling on a monthly. Well, we could roll weekly, you know, bi-weekly, monthly. It, we just unlocked that part. And then the other big takeaway for us was, you know, let's try to give ourselves as much space above. So not this two to 3%. Let's treat companies the way that they should be treated, which is differently. You know, you would treat Amazon differently than you would treat, you know, a company like Shopify that you would treat, you know, next era utility. Uh, right. And so you would give yourself different headspace above when you, when you write these contracts. Uh, and then lastly, um, all these systematic strategies have to write the contract. One thing that was a bit shocking for people was we may not write the contract if we don't think that we're getting paid to write that contract. So we would actually, you know, pick less income over the short term. Um, but rather than put us in a situation where we write this contract doesn't pay us much. And then the stock goes through our, 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 um, our, our level. The last thing I'll say, and I'm sure I, I know I've, I've spoken for quite a bit. I know you probably heard the questions are building up. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the last thing I'd say, the other big unlock that we did here that was different than I think many of the different strategies was for an income producing product, we said we were going to own stocks that don't pay a dividend. That's one of the more innovative things about your strategy. It's, it's very unique. It's, it's, uh, you know, on one side, you've got your handpicked dividend payers. And on the other side, you've added this element of growth in these non, non-dividend paying stocks. When you add that extra layer on top, when you stack the, the buy right strategy on top, uh, you're actually harvesting income from the growth in your strategy. I guess one point I wanted to bring up was the point you made about the systematic strategies being obliged to write the calls or write the puts, whereas you would have the discretion to decide whether or not to do that. You can be like Casey at bat, right? You don't have to swing for every ball. You know, that's one of my favorite analogies, by the way, from, from Buffett, which is that, you know, just because someone throws a ball at you doesn't mean you have to swing for it. So let's divide the two segments, let's first talk about dividends and what are you looking for in particular in the dividend sleeve of your strategy? What kind of companies are you looking for? Uh, you know, there's the stalwart dividend payers, maybe I, I'm not sure if that, how that forms a baseline for your portfolio. And then, and then, uh, there's the growers. 
Sure. Um, so we'll break it, you know, down the stock selection. And one thing, um, I'd say a, a big unlock for me, um, was, you know, not following, you know, a lot of times it's like growth versus income and then we bucket stocks. And so, uh, for me and my style, it's looking at, uh, secular growth trends. Uh, and that could be, you know, before COVID, it was travel. Travel was an amazing secular growth trend. It was every year more and more people wanted to travel. Uh, it could be uh, on-premise IT infrastructure moving to the cloud. Uh, it could be payments, you know, as simple as um, cash going to credit cards and debit, and, you know, following that trend. Uh, it could be health and wellness trends. And so I like to look at things that have these sort of multi-year horizons, and they keep sort of a nice sort of line that goes from the bottom left of the chart to the, the top right. Yeah. And then looking for stocks that then, you know, can, I, I call them sort of horses, but the, you know, can, are the best horses to ride in order to take advantage of that. Uh, so in the case of travel, it could be, you know, Airbus, uh, Boeing before all of its problems. It could have been an you know, online travel agency. It could be a hotel, but you look along the value chain. And you say, okay, which are, you know, what are, what are these companies, you know, are they good operators? Uh, and you know, will they, you know, benefit the most from these secular trends? And in some cases, you know, we run a global fund. Um, the best person we find, you know, might reside in the UK, might be in Spain, might be in Japan, might be in, in, in the U S and that's sort of how we land on our sort of global allocation. Uh, and then whether they pay a dividend or not. Ideally, we want companies, you know, we'd like to be around the same yield as the index. Um, but that's sort of how we do our styles, you know, stock selection and all the same, you know, quality rules for us apply. We want them to grow their free cash flow. Uh, they have to have, you know, uh, quality management. They need to, you know, have an avenue for growth. Uh, and they have to have good balance sheets. Uh, so that, that's, that would sort of drive. Um, for us, and I'd say our bread and butter for TD Asset Management, I would apply for these two ETFs. And when it comes to dividends, you know, we like dividend growers. Um, so right. again, these are, uh, you know, companies that, you know, have confidence that they can keep, you know, because of, you know, they're growing in new markets, new products, new services that, you know, they can repeatedly and consistently grow and grow their dividend, you know, that, that sends off, you know, positive signals. Um, that the business strategy is working, that the management team is cohesive, what you know, and, and understands the direction in which they're growing into. Now, what about the? Uh, let, let's talk about the growth side. How do you go about picking uh, the businesses that that you're taking stakes in in that in that side? Right, and so again, we're trying to look at them in one bucket, which is follow the secular trends. So let's you know walk through some examples. So and we've been. If, These are the non-dividend payers yeah. too, I, I, just to clarify. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, we can look at, uh, let's say we're looking at the cloud uh, movements, the cloud or e-commerce. Uh, you could think of a company like Amazon uh, would definitely be your poster child. Uh, so a company that has compounded quite nicely from a price perspective, you know, but doesn't pay a dividend, wouldn't be looking to pay a dividend. Yeah, we see some strategies that will try to slip in Amazon in, into their uh their funds and say, maybe one day they'll pay a dividend. Uh, we've seen that from other income products. Um, but I never wanted to apologize for owning a great company. Uh, and that's why, um, you'll see later on when we talk about the calls that we can create a sort of a synthetic income stream on top of a company like Amazon. Um, 
or it might be, you know, in payments or, or in financial, um, tech companies you know, we, we like a company like JP Morgan. Um, but why should that also stop us from owning a company like square, uh, which is right. also, you know, slowly building a digital bank, you know, piece by piece. So for us, it was at the core of the portfolio. Um, why should we let that sort of, I have to have an income bucket. I have to have a growth bucket. Stop me, um, from all yeah. quality franchises. And then, you know, I'd say for the most part, um, we're allowed up to, you know, 30% non-dividend payers, but you know, the bulk of the portfolio are companies that are paying a dividend, growing a dividend, um, to give you a perspective on how much they're growing, um, even year to date. Uh, the companies are that we own, you know, are growing their dividend, you know, 10 to 12%. Um, so, you know, again, think about inflation running at four to five, you know, our companies are paying us these checks and these checks yeah. have grown, you know, 10 to 12%. Um, and that's just, you know, again, from the income side. Uh, and, and so again, for us, the big unlock is not to, you know, think about companies as this is a growth company. This is an income company. Um, let's just look at secular trends and then build the best portfolios that can take advantage of these trends. It makes the overall strategy definitely more compelling. Dividends on their own might not be so enticing. When you layer in the growth element of your strategy, sometimes investors might look at a, at a strategy and say, well, how come this strategy doesn't own these other companies? And, and then, you know, the answer to that is that they're not allowed to. It's not in their mandate. So that's what you're referring to when you say unlock. You've got this opportunity to participate in some truly great secular growth names like Square, like Amazon, uh, long-term, and then, and then not, not do that at the cost of not receiving dividends because now you've layered in this other strategy on top of that, which allows you to harvest income from stocks that aren't paying any income. I, I think that's the part where, you know, I mentioned, you know, known unknowns. I think my sense is that advisors have a preconceived notion, uh, perhaps that, you know, stems from, you know, getting on the internet, doing some reading about buy right. Personally, I went looking at, at what was available in terms of intelligence on, on buy right strategies. And what I found wasn't compelling. The systematic buy right, when you're just doing things you know, in a machine-like way, you get machine-like results. Everything sort of flattens out and averages. I don't and think there's any malintent on, <clears throat> on the part of a, of a manufacturer who does a buy-right index. That said, you know, I, I agree. think there's some I, it, reputational it, it, risk to doing so. I, I mean, I'll, I'll put my tinfoil hat on for a moment. You know, there's a number of different ways you can do it, right? So, so you can write on half the portfolio, maybe half the portfolio you write calls on and the other half you let go free. You can write on two right. thirds, 40%, three quarters. You know, so, so everybody out there who's employing that strategy and offering that in the marketplace chooses, makes a decision in their rule set. How much do we want to write on? That's number one. Number two then is like, where do we write? Do we write at the money? Because then it's almost certain we'd be called away and, and we're limiting our upside. Uh, that's where more yield is though. Do you write 2% out of the money? Your batting average is still going to look pretty poor that way. Do you write 5% out? Do you write 10 out? You know, there's no premiums to earn if you write too far out of the money, if you're only going out 30 days. And that's the third piece is 
you know, the, the de facto standard seems to be 30 days, four weeks at a time these days, but do we set a rule, uh, you know, do we, do we include one of the rules to be, we write seven week calls, I don't know, whatever, you know, the, the trouble with it is you get this set of rules, how much we write on what portion of the account we write on, uh, how far out of the money do we write and how, what kind of time value do we want to try to earn through this strategy? If you get five different providers, five different manufacturers, each with a slightly different set of rules. The fact of the matter is this, there is one winner and there is four losers, right? There's, there's reputational risk to doing a systematic covered call because you can do yeah. all of your research and all of your homework and, and, and yet forward looking COVID, right? The, the game might change and you might not want to be writing calls on a systematic basis through summer of 2020 when you had this right. tremendous snapback. So, you know, the, the tinfoil hat, the conspiracy theory sort of part of this is you don't see any, uh, or you see very, very few systematic covered call ETFs being launched new at this point, because there's more downside than upside to a manufacturer doing that. They might get lucky or despite their best efforts, they might end up as the fifth of five providers in a, in a category. So. You know, being flexible, being active, I think is really the name of the game. And in the in, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery kind of camp. Now we're starting to get providers who are looking at you know, some of the elements of our strategy and trying to, uh, to chart that path instead. When advisors are looking for, you know, third-party intelligence on writing puts and calls as, as an income strategy. They're finding that the majority of the intelligence that's available to, is not properly informing them. And therefore they're getting a misconstrued impression of how it can work, how you're actually applying a pinpointed strategy to, to each of these put writing or call writing decisions. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of different avenues to sort of jump off. I can tell you kind of, and we, we, we had an idea, uh, and then we come to market. Um, one of the first things I got asked from, let's say, hey, your advisor is, oh, that, that's interesting. What's your back test? And when you're applying active stock selection, active call writing, the ability to not write, um, the put writing and you do it in one holistic package, I was like, there is no back test because how can you go back in the, in the past and say, I, I would not have written that contract. <laughs> Or I would have, yeah. you know, it's, it's basically cherry picking. And so that was, I'd say that was the first pushback, which was, um, novel. Um, I feel more comfortable with a back test and that goes back to, you know, smart beta, low fall, all these right. systematic, even the covered call, um, whether it's good or not, or you agree with it, it has its challenges. It's, you know, different parts of the market. It works better. Um, you could always fall back and say, why'd you buy it? Well, um, this, you know, back test told me it works out. It just didn't work in this environment or it worked in this environment. And so that was, I'd say, you know, uh, it would, uh, some of the answers were novel, you know, come back to me in one year, uh, come back <laughs> to me in two years or the standard industry line, you know, come back to me in three years. So uh, some of it was sort of the sort of pushing us off and then we'd I'd say, you know, watch us, like put us on your, your yeah. watch us, watch us. Um, the other, th yeah, I, I think, I think the problem with rules-based investing is not the idea itself, but often it's the rules, right? right? Well, it's the, the rules it's... get people comfort because 
Yeah. Again, it goes back to what Trevor was saying. None, none of these products have any malice. If anything, the systematic coverage call strategy is quite elegant in that it's completely transparent. Yeah. Everybody, you know, whether it's the dealer, uh, the market makers, the, the holders, the advisors, those are everything that's going on, which is also one of its flaws. Um, yeah. but, but from a product perspective, yeah. could you ask for anything more? You want transparency that again, I'd say from that perspective, it solves, you know, that comfort that, you know, I sold my clients a product. I know exactly what it's to, again, may not be efficient, solve all the problems, but I know I could explain it to my client. I'd say the other pushback that we got, or again, it, it's, you know, um, we're not new to, you know, this isn't an emerging space for people who are, you know, with a land grab. You know, we're coming into a space that, you know, has entrenched ideas about cover call strategies and has already parked a lot of money. Again, we talked about 20 or 30 billion in assets under management right. in these strategies. Uh, and so for us, the common say- That's in Canada, right? Yeah. And that's just in Canada, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then for us, the common say, um, oh, that's not a really great product from a total, like if you ever looked at it from a total return perspective, um, that's not a very good strategy. And Pierre, I can tell you, I've been in a room and you know, I had good energy with an advisor. And as soon as I said, that's not a great product, the energy level just dropped um, and yeah. because he owned it and he had his clients in it. And again, he was like, okay, but it's okay, right? It's transparent. Um, <laughs> but, but again, it, it's- well, we, we get very, you know, uh, we're, this, making decisions is difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's not, you know, there's a lot of energy required and there's a lot of, there's a lot of commitment required when you make a decision about having something on your shelf. That, that you're going to recommend actively to your clients. I think, I think, you know, we get vested emotionally in these things. So I'm not surprised to hear, hear that anecdote, which is, which is that, you know, his face dropped when you said it's not really a good product, but I'd rather hear that from someone like you than, than from, you know, the average investor and, and, or a client, you know, coming from you, you know, you're objectively looking at it and saying it could be better. It could be much better. I, and I'd say, you know, the last, you know, um, I'd say the last challenging bit that we found, um, was I'd say, you know, we, we came to market in 2019. I've been working you know, on the idea for, you know, almost a year. We come to market in 2019. Uh, arguably this has been a, you know, as a, there's a major, you know, stock market bull run from, we'll call it you know, February or March, 2009. Um, and that there's this strong rules or I'd say maybe even a heuristic or uh, you know, rule of thumb when it comes to covered call strategies, which is, um, they don't work in a, in a, in a full market right? or, or we'll call it a very fast rising market. Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, that was one of the things that, that kept coming up in, in sort of my sort of background research on covered call writing and buy right strategies was that you don't want to own something like this in a, in a strong, in a strong market, in a bull market, because you're, you're giving away some of your upside for it. Exactly. But, and yeah. then, sorry. And then, uh, it's good in a, a sideways market, uh, and yeah. it's great in a falling market. Um, but Pierre, I, you know, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Um, you know, we have, we have a major bull market right now, uh, right. since March 23rd last year. Um, so are we near the top? Are you going to switch from your uncovered strategy to your cover strategy? <laughs> I, I, you know, I think it's a lot to ask, even for myself. Um, you know, we, we don't, I don't call tops and bottoms. Um, you know, I look again, I look for my secular trends to make sure those trends haven't broken or the companies, those horses, you know, don't misdirect 
themselves yeah. from the, 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 the strategy. Um, but for me to say, oh, you know, you got to switch from uncovered to cover because the market's going to turn to then put all that pressure on the advisor, um, I think is, is, is quite a big challenge, especially because again, they, there's so many different you know, needs that they're trying to solve for their client to just say, yeah. okay, I'm, I got to sell one product, got to buy this other product. That's a, that's a big tactical call. Uh, that no one wants to make because if you're wrong, it, it doesn't look good. Um, right. What we were, you know, this project, this, these products, you know, basically what we were saying is because we're going to do the active element on the call strategy and we were focused on total return, you know, our premise is that we're going to beat our benchmark. Um, and that, you know, we can outperform in a fast rising market. Um, and so, you know, we can look at the history, you know, so TGED, the global uh, ETF, you know, that was the one we incepted uh, in, you know, spring 2019. We were already, the market was already on a run at right. dealing with, uh, you know, we forget now, we had a, a U.S.-China trade war. <laughs> um, but we added value, you know, through that yeah. run. Uh, and then we added value on the market plunge during COVID. Um, what I, I'm proud of, really proud of is that um, that rip, and, and we can, I think we can call it a rip from March right. 3rd, even to yeah. today. And we're talking like 45 degree angle. We continue to add value. And what we noticed is that some of these newer uh, strategies that, you know, it, that employ an active element or the systematic could not keep up because again, we don't know exactly their methodologies when they say active. It, time and I just assume because of their distribution yields, they have to, you know, they don't give themselves much upside. Or it is really challenging to say, I won't read that call. You know, again, you got to make that decision. You know, that I think for us, that separated us from the pack. Yeah. And that unknown unknown that I think everyone should know now is you can rank covered calls and you can outperform the market. Um, and you don't need this pressure of, I'm going to be uncovered now because I know exactly that the market's going to go up. Oh, I'm going to cover now because I know the market's going sideways or down. Um, the last thing, you know, on, on, you know, what, again, what we saw the speed at which the market peaked and the market plunged was around the same time that these systematic strategies rolled their cover calls. Right. And so that, you know, that premise that these strategies outperform in the down market in this specific situation with COVID didn't apply. So, uh, you know, Feb 19th was the market peak. Yeah. That's roughly around the third Friday of the month when all these strategies roll over. Again, everyone knows this. Um, the VIX, so let's say that's our measure for implied volatility, which is going to drive the the, the that you get from, from writing these calls, was, you know, I'd say sub-20. Right. At its peak, it was like 80 or 90. So we're talking about, you know, a major, you know, spike in, in volatility, which means a major spike in premiums. Yeah, that was the beginning of March. So yeah, so February right. 19th. Beginning of March, 2020. Right, it's when yeah. we get the spike. And then, yeah. um, you know, the bottom of the market's March 23rd, which again would right. roughly coincide with that third Friday. You know, for us, um, you know, it, it was obviously, you know, traumatizing one from just a, you know, personal safety and, and you know, friends and family. Uh, and then, you know, the other challenging part was, you know, the stocks that we owned. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, doors are closing. You're wondering if, you know, any of the businesses yeah. you own survive. I would say from an option premium perspective, it was Christmas every day. Because we, <laughs> we were able to constantly reprice our options 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, we might've sold it for 50 cents. It's worth a penny because the stock falls. We buy it back and we write it again. Um, stuff that, you know, when it might've been two weeks out or three weeks out, we brought it in. So we're constantly repricing as much as we can to go up the curve and then down the curve. Um, and again, if you followed a systematic strategy, you kind of were locked in. Uh, right. And then, you, you know, once you started to say, okay, I'm going to catch up, that's when the market pivoted. And if you're putting in your 2%, um, you know, upside, that doesn't work from March 23rd to today. You know, the, the market just kept going and you would have just kept getting stopped out and yet you'd have to keep buying back, you know, at high right. higher prices. It's very interesting just to, again, delineate between the fact that, that a systematic approach wouldn't be able to make those, those daily decisions. You know, a lot of, a lot of algorithms were delayed because they were, they're waiting for the turn of a signal. Like a lot of the things we've talked about today are due to the biases that people have about so many different moving parts in the market. And, and, and a lot of those biases are preventing them from investigating new ideas and, and taking a, you know, a deep dive into something like this, like what we're talking about today, that's, that's really profound in it's, you know, in, in its effectiveness. So let's recap what we've talked about. We've got the dividend sleeve, right? And, and, and still, that, I'm going to push back here and be like, there's yeah. no sleeves, right? Like we, we look at it holistically. Um, okay, good. So, so we got, got <laughs> we, you know, we got the, the, we'll call it the core of the portfolio. So that's our, yeah. our, our dividend growers and, you know, our, our, we'll call it the non-dividend payers, but we'll call it secular growers. And that, yeah. that's one layer that we, uh, again, if we think about it as a cape, you know, that's one layer that we, we put together and, you know, we're trying to seek out a, a market level of, of dividend yield. Uh, and, and that, that would be the, the base layer. And then on top of that, then we, we, we would apply the, the call overlay. And that's, that's just, you know, trying to bring in the income, you know, yeah, but, you know, I, I like to look at it, you know, we, to, if we had likened it to real estate, I have a bunch of great buildings or, or multi-units. And now we want to collect rent, rent from them. Uh, and that's how I look at the call premiums. I mean, I'm trying to collect rent from all these assets that I own. Um, and, you know, again, one of the unlocks that we found was you could have a company that pays you a dividend and we could write, you know, a call on it and the net yield, you know, we might achieve that even better by writing a call on Amazon and giving ourselves 8% upside for the week, um, or 8% upside for two weeks. Uh, and that's, you know, or, or the, the, you know, a similar contract on Square, you know, might yield better than owning JP Morgan and then even layering another call on top of it. Uh, and so we look at the calls uh, and that's another, you know, sleeve of income. And then, you know, then we'll look at our, our puts and we'll think about how much cash we want to hold. And, you know, being an active manager and, and I have a, a, a team of, of, of analysts. You know, we know what stocks we want to add and how, or either add to the portfolio or increase the weights in our portfolio. And that's where the put contracts are on. And, um, you know, I'm happily, I've done the work and my team's done the work and we're happily to take assets off people's hands. You know, so it might be 5% out of the money. It might be 10% out of the money. So we're talking about below the market price. Right. And again, people are giving us these yields. And I think, again, long-term would be mid-teens, 
in this environment, it's, it's even juicier. Um, so we're seeing multiples of those yields and then holistically all that together. And you know, we think that's about a 4% yield in TGD, about a three plus percent yield in TVD. And to go back to what we said about the original, you know, the, the problem statement that we're focusing on is obviously people's yields have collapsed. Um, and they either need to double their assets overnight or they need to move up a risk curve. Um, with our strategies, I mean, people are going to recognize the stocks that we own. So it's not like they're moving up, uh, the risk curve, they're owning quality franchises and secular growing areas. Um, and there's a growth element in the sense that even though they pay dividends, they're still growth companies. And we have companies that, you know, they're better off reinvesting in their business, uh, and growing themselves as well. So that solves, I think the growth element and some of the income, but again, um, Dividend yield today is not enough, and that's where you know, we want to enhance it. That's the calls uh, and the puts, and you know, four four percent plus, I think, puts you in a pretty comfortable range um, for most investors. And again, our style, because it's growth, income, total return, doesn't just apply to you know people in their fifties and sixties or seventies. I think it applies for you know a wide <clears throat> range of people. You know, even yeah, it's more universal. 40s. Exactly. You know, yeah. that, so then it's trying to, it's solving a lot of things and, you know, and trying to do it in an elegant way, but in sort of one product. We're upping the sophistication of global equities. You, you, you know, this isn't, this isn't something that I would suggest investors do on their own. You know, if, if, if you were to employ a covered call writing strategy as an individual tax filer in Canada. Yeah, you know, the CRA may have something to say about that. And all of a sudden it's, it's income, right? Yeah. Advisors, you know, your most precious commodity is time, you know, it's client facing time really. And so it is possible that an advisor could employ something like this herself or himself, but this is, this is, you know, I'm biased for saying so, but this is something we've pretty firmly believe you should delegate to a provider, to a manufacturer like TD Asset Management, because every yeah. contract you write is, you know, one less client interaction, so to speak. You know, he, here in Ontario, dealing with advisors and portfolio managers for, you know, a decade and a half, I can count on one hand the number of investment professionals who, who do this as part of their value proposition, because it's just so labor intensive. There's something really really elegantly simple about giving that responsibility to, to us via the ETFs we have on offer. Yeah. And on top of that, it's in the ETF wrapper. So 70% dividend stocks, 30% non-dividend or up to 30%. Yeah. Up to 30%. 30. I'd say, you know, we're probably about half that, we're probably around 15%. Um, okay. But again, that, it's not that that's prescriptive. It's, it's just, we have the ability Again, everything goes back. Yeah, you you have you have cash as well, right? Right. That's but, right. You know, to yeah. everything that we found is the more again, the more restrictive, the more rules, the more you hold yourself back. And I mean, most people are like, I want more rules. Like, but in terms of total return performance, the the less you know, the more uh, ability that I can you know buy this, you know, the companies that we want to buy into. Again, not be stuck that it has to have a dividend or, or not a dividend or a targeted yield. Right. Um, or, you know, okay, fine. Let's make it only 10% non-dividend pairs. We'll give you a little, but you know, we want to still say it's income. And we said we can generate synthetic yields better than 
dividend payer. So, I mean, why stop ourselves? Now, again, it's an income product. So, you know, we, we say 70, 30, but I have that ability to, again, depending on the market, you know, to take it up there or to yeah. get, you know, I don't have to own a dividend payer. Uh, it just, again, it's that, that, that flexibility allows us to, you know, get the creative juices going. And, and again, ma we're maximalists too. Just yeah. not maximizing yield or maximizing the total return. All three. Think of the flip side total too, return. right? If, if, yes, if there's so, a dividend sorry. paying company that suspends their dividend as part of our portfolio, then Ben and team have a decision to make. It, it's not automatically going to be forced out. If a company chooses to suspend a dividend due to COVID as opposed to fundamentals, yeah. you know, we're not forced to exercise ourselves of that business, right? And, uh, to Ben's point, we, we can continue to make our own dividend, so to speak, if you will, on, on the call side of it. So that, I mean, that was a big factor that I, I don't know how big of a factor that was, but, uh, for you, but I'm guessing it was given that, that during COVID dividends were cut, how did, how did that affect your strategy? So, um, I'd say again, for people that depend on dividends, you know, that was quite shocking. Yeah. And I mean, in some cases you can't blame the company, um, you know, when they're laying off their employees, you know, when the business is, you know, ceasing because we effectively yeah. had to shut it down you know, you've won a viable business. And so in some cases, you know, you would understand it. There are many companies that we own that sustained their dividend, even grew their dividend last year You're in, in you know, probably, you know, the worst environment of our careers. So not to say that, you know, all companies. You know, some companies were severely impacted. Some companies, you know, we're still able to write it through. And a lot of it, um, is because we focus on the on balance sheets. Um, but I'd say for the average investor that, you know, that's a challenge if you were depending. Even companies like at and you know, kind of cut their dividend as well. I mean, a lot of people depend on, on that, that yield that comes from that, that telco. I'd say the, the one thing that really, and so Going back to the your original question, and again, that's where the calls can come in. And I, I remember I said it was almost like Christmas Day. Again, yeah. the implied volatility, so the uncertainty of the path of where that stock could travel on a week or on on a two week or a three week basis was so unknown because none of us had ever experienced this before. Um, that's that's what like really fueled those premiums. Uh, and so we more than made up. Um, for, you know, our dividend income, you know, compressing, uh, on the call side, um, you know, I, you know, I'll, I'll probably never, hopefully I'll never see that again in my <laughs> career, but from you know, yeah. a, a, a harvesting yield perspective, you know, one of the, you know, amazing moments I never experienced. So, but, but if you weren't, if you weren't running this combined strategy, you wouldn't have been able to do that. Exactly. Right? So the, yeah. there are many, yeah. you know, I think it's like the aristocrats where they have to have, you know, 25 years of dividend growth. You know, that's amazing. You can find a company yeah. that can do that. Um, they miss, you know, one dividend payment and they might be booted, you know, three years or five years. I think the rules have been massaged over time in order to let right. people back in. Um, the one thing I'd say that, um, is, is, you know, completely different and something uh, we never sort of faced before was, you know, it, it's a healthcare crisis. It's a social crisis. Um, there were companies, again, we had done our research. Um, they had ample balance sheet, um, that still cut their dividend, uh, because of social pressures. Um, again, because of COVID, you know, they didn't want to be, you know, seen on the front page of newspapers 
enriching shareholders with either buybacks or dividends. And so they even cut it. So for us, I'd say for me and, and my team, you know, that was a big surprise in the sense that, you know, we pride ourselves on, you know, getting out of companies that, you know, might, we think might yeah. cut their dividend. And here, you know, we did our homework and this new element about, you know, social pressures um, forced them to cut their dividend or suspend it. Now, coming out of the crisis, many companies are in great shape and they're generating um, you know, free cash flow, you thought, um, the notional levels of free cash flow we hadn't seen before because in many ways, you know, COVID caused them to become more efficient and we've seen margin expansion. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit bifurcated. Some companies have been able to bring back their dividends um, and not uh, face any sort of newspaper headline pressure. Right. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, 5% increase, a 10% increase. And there are some elements or some companies that might be more in the eye of, of let's say, the general person that if they were to institute a, a dividend uh, or increase their dividend or do big buybacks. So um, let's say the major pharmaceutical companies that are uh, supplying uh, uh, the vaccine are you know, generating a lot of cash flow and free cash flow. Mm -hmm. They are not able to return any of that to shareholders. Uh, cause you better believe that that would be on the front page that, you know, they're yeah. enriching themselves on this healthcare crisis. <clears throat> um, some companies it's, they've been given a pass, uh, and other companies I think have been held back or holding themselves back, um, maybe, maybe into 2022, yeah. um, so that they won't get this sort of headline, uh, front page that, you know, they, the shareholders are being rewarded while either employees or in their clients, uh, you know, are still being impacted yeah. by the virus. Wow. I, I, you know, that, sorry, that was an angle that, that, uh, you know, those are some of the unintended consequences of ESG, right? I mean, uh, Trevor, you, you, you said there, there are advisors who do this themselves, who try to do things like buy right themselves, and it's not very efficient from a tax point of view. Within the ETF wrapper, it's very efficient, number one, and number two, option writing income, the option yield is also treated as capital gain. Yeah, that's correct. Right. Yeah. It's not, yeah. it's very tax efficient income. It's yeah. It's a little on the so, weeds, but you know, think of sort of two layers of tax with regards to ETFs is what you do as the investor, you know, did you buy it here and sell it there? And then there's what we do yeah. as, as the ETF provider, right? So if, if we have turnover in the portfolio. Yes, there could be capital gains, of course, and, and, you know, you would pay taxes in the year that was realized, and then you'd add that to your ACB, right? So, so with regards to call writing, that is, um, on the capital side of the account. So that would be distributed to investors as, as capital gains when, when the year is up, uh, put writing is a little different. So put writing is on the income account. Um, so if we write a put where we don't own the security, uh, but we're writing it, you know, cash secured put that could end up being income to an investor. Right. But, you know, then I would say, recall that all, um, all ETF companies, TM included, we get to choose where we take our fees from. So our management fee, we will always take our management fee from the most tax inefficient portion of the income. Right. right. So, so if we have a chance to, we will take it out of foreign income or put income and we'll leave 
the eligible dividends, if any, or the capital gains distributions for the investors at year end. So we're trying to make this ETF as tax efficient as possible. In addition to delivering, you know, a, a good outcome, a gross of, of taxes, net of taxes, we want this to be really efficient and really of, of benefit to investors as well, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that, Trevor. That's, that's nifty. When you combine the dividend income and the growth and the option income, um, that, that makes for a very nice total return, total income. Yeah. Don't, don't take uh, our word for it. Right. But, but I, I happen to think it's a killer app, you know, yeah. the thing about back tests is I've, I've never met a back test I didn't love as, as the saying goes. Right. So we don't have a back test, but we have almost 30 months of history. We have live data at this point. And this is an ETF whose assets have doubled uh, year to date. So, you know, there's more interest for gaining more traction. Um, and I think yeah. at the very least, we'd want people to put us on the short list or on the watch list. Uh, but let's have a conversation as well, really. Let's take it off the, the, the podcast today and uh, get to the finer points of, you know, whether or not this would be a fit inside of an advisor's model or portfolio. Thank you very much, gentlemen. That was, that was uh, very, very interesting. I think, um, you know, it's, it's something that, that investors and advisors alike should be looking at more closely. How can advisors find you, Trevor? So I guess for the purposes of the audience today, I, I'm one of three ETF specialists in Canada here at TD Asset Management. So there's one at West calling in mind, Greg Crozen. Uh, there's Jonathan Needham who covers, uh, Eastern Canada and has some uh, national office, uh, national accounts responsibilities. And we all interface with advisors in sort of the IROC space via our broker dealer team. So if you're familiar with who your TDM wholesaler and insider are on the fund side, uh, we interface, we partner with them. So, so. You know, we float around okay. a little bit is, is, is the fun part, but, uh, the main way you can have an ETF discussion with us is via your TDAM sales team that you might already be using for our mutual funds, for example. And then, you know, we can have both conversations, which is great. So any, any final takeaways from, from both of you? I, I, I'd say from my perspective here, you know, I, I appreciate the, the platform and interest. You know, I, I, I wish, you know, our strategy had that, you know, one line, you know, this is, you know, this is, you, you have this problem. This is the answer. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we've had a quite a lengthy discussion. There's, there's many layers and there's all this sophistication yeah. that we're trying to do one product. Um, so, and I appreciate the opportunity to, again, we're trying to solve not just an income problem, but a growth problem because of how low yields are. Um, and we think. You know, our two ETFs, EGED and TUED, you know, solve many problems for the advisor and for their clients in order to you know, meet those needs without having to, you know, go and, and do something challenging from a you know, risk perspective. And so, um, again, yeah. it's quality franchises and secular growing industries. And uh, it's about uh, dividends and call option premiums and put premiums, but in a way that the industry never sort of you know, thought of because, you know, we like to think about things in sort of rules and buckets. And, um, so I, I encourage people if, if, if our discussion, you know, pique their interest to, to reach out and, and we're happy to, you know, again, uh, walk you through exactly what we're trying to do. 
Trevor? Yeah, pretty, pretty much the same thing. You, you know, I, I think it would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, that TD has, uh, let's say afforded our competitors a head start. You know, there's some ETF companies that have been around for 10 years, for 20 years, and we're a little newer than, you know, maybe some of the more established players. But to that end, it means we must innovate. We must try harder to borrow from Avis, right? So I think a common thread to our passive ETFs, our quant ETFs, our sector ETFs, our active ETFs is that is the innovation that has taken place. You know, we look at the landscape, we try to evaluate what the pros and cons are really of some of the legacy products that are out there. And we're really trying to build better ETFs for our advisor clients, for their investors alike. And I think, you know, in this business, uh, dollars are votes, right? We, we have the votes of confidence. We have this really incredible asset gathering momentum behind us, which, you know, knock, knock on wood tells us we're doing something right. So we're going to continue to launch product that we think is timely, that innovates the space, that tries to improve on that, which is, which is already out there. And with regards to active, you know, to borrow the Gretzky phrase, we're skating where the puck will be. You know, if, if you look at the ETF industry, the fastest growing segment is the active ETF and TGED and TUED are really the flagships on offer for, for the active side. So, you know, appreciate the time to talk to it, uh, Pierre, Ben, good to see you again. And, uh, yeah. you know, let's do it again soon. Thank you. And, uh, so one last question for both of you, would you rather be the worst player on the best team? or the best player on the worst team? Um, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm quite a, a, a basketball fanatic. Uh, I think it depends on your, your career. I think we've seen with, uh, certain, uh, basketball players, you know, be it Damian Lillard or, or Steph Curry, uh, being the best player on maybe not the best, um, college team gets you in the pros. Mm. Um, but. What we've all seen from the last dance is being the worst player on the Chicago Bulls got you six rings. Uh, so <laughs> I guess my answer is it depends. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to come out and say that I enjoy being the, uh, the stupidest guy in the room. Uh, but I kind of, I, I do love being at a shop that has just such intellectual capital behind it. Uh, and so, you know, having the, the worst house in the best neighborhood or you know, being the worst player on the best team, uh, it, it is to me really what it's all about, you know, is, is the opportunity to learn and grow from peers. You don't get that if you're the best player on the worst team or something like that. So I'm, I'm going right. to, I'm going to go with Ben on that one. Awesome guys. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, it's been very enlightening. Thanks Pierre. Thanks Pierre.